Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. Today we are doing an individual review over the movie Silence, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Jay Cox and Martin Scorsese, based on the 1966 novel by Shushaku Indo. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan, once again, back in the same room. Yes, we are back together, possibly only just for this review for the time being, but it is good to be back together in the same room doing a review together. Yes, I'm very excited. This is actually a movie um, that I watched first, and I said, Corbin, you have to watch this. And then eventually you got around to watching it. Uh, But yeah, this is one that I felt really could have listened to some really good discussion just in general whether or not that's a, whether now i'll keep of course what our thoughts are until we get into the review but that's just kind of what i was thinking when we put it on the schedule and we agreed this would be a good thing to talk about on the schedule and i did see the trailer when it came out oh gosh i'm not sure when the trailer officially released mm-hmm. but it's been at least a year and a half ago yeah. Probably. Yeah. And the trailer was very fascinating to me because it was really fast paced. It looked intense. It had great imagery and I was hooked because I wanted to see more. Uh, yeah. Anyways, the trailer, it is interesting. Uh, fast paced maybe goes a bit against the, the style of the movie overall. Um, but it is interesting that they chose a fast pace, but all of like the images that we see a kind of clashing a little bit but yeah this is one that would get you hooked it got me hooked and i was like this looks pretty pretty good um from what i'm seeing back when i saw it the first time but i mean we'll come to find out here in just a second it's kind of hard to see this in the theater when once it was officially released yeah it was hard to see it in the theater because it did have a the limited release was december 23rd 2016 Mm -hmm. and the wide release was january 13th 2017 and even that wide release i used tentatively because originally it the wide release was only in 747 theaters that is still extremely small and then after the next week or so, they put it in 1,580 theaters. Still, that is fairly small, especially for a Martin Scorsese film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's the reason why they released it December, I think, 23rd of 2016 is so that way they could have a place in the Oscars. And it, when it first released, that very limited release, it was only four theaters that it played in. But it was just enough for it to get... Into the Oscars, which you need a wide release to, or a release on in theaters to do that. So yeah, not very many theaters. Kind of crazy because yeah, this is Martin Scorsese. He just came off of Wolf of Wall Street, which was a pretty big success. Um, so you would assume that if it has this guy's name on it, a renowned director, um, that it would have gotten a lot more popularity. But this is one that kind of went under the radar for a lot of people, which is interesting. Well, and I should note, like I said, it came into theaters in January, and usually January is where all the studios dump their bad movies. Now, once in a while, there is a diamond in the rough that does seem to be the case more and more, even for this year. 
But the movie left theaters February 23rd, so it was barely in theaters over a month. Yeah, month, I mean, maybe two months, almost, if you count it, did the, the December release to be one. But even then, two months in a theater, um, and only getting a wide release in January, uh, yeah, that's not very long to get any money. Or for audiences to see it in the theater, which even then only released in about 1,500-ish. So, yeah. Opening weekend at the box office, it was number 16, Mm. which is horrible to come in at number 16. And especially shocking for a Martin Scorsese film. His films are usually always very popular or maybe popular for the wrong reasons if they cause some type of controversy. Nevertheless, number 16, and it didn't really get better from there. I couldn't find the budget for this movie. Were you able to find the budget? I was, actually. Um, it had a $50 million budget, and even then, they were the reason why it's so small is, for even for a Scorsese movie is that they wanted to keep it kind of small scale as much as they could. Um, there were some... Their, their development for this movie, uh, it got caught in some pretty bad development hell for about 25 years. So, yeah, that was part of one of the reasons. Um, but they also wanted to keep it pretty small scale, just in general. Um, so that's kind of the, the thing. Uh, we'll come to find out that this movie is more of a passion project than it is trying to get money. But yes, getting $23.7 million total for a budget that is $50 million is... Not very good. Yeah, domestically, it only grossed $7.1 million, but who could blame it being in theaters for that short of amount of time? And I gotta say, the marketing for this movie was almost nil. There wasn't a whole lot to it. I Like I said, I did see the trailer only because I frequent IMDb, but other than that, I didn't see much of this movie being marketed. Right. I remember seeing this movie, uh, the trailer for it, and I got really excited because it's Martin Scorsese. It was, uh, about, a, a, basically a film about persecution with Christianity, and I was, it just interested me. And I was like, well, that, Martin Scorsese on a movie like that, I wonder what that's gonna be like. So I followed this movie for a long time, um, uh, at least since 2015, when it was first announced, um, that this was gonna be his, that this was gonna be his next movie, and that this was, I got to see the plot. So I've been following it for a while, but yeah, the marketing for this was kind of under the shadows. It, I don't think I ever saw a trailer for it at a theater that I went to. I only saw it on IMDb, although I'm sure that this played in theaters somewhere eventually. Maybe in more indie cinemas than it would have in like big budget Hollywood ones. It did much better in the foreign market, and that is... A bigger market than the United States right. because it comprises a number of countries. It did 16.6 million, and like Alan said, for a total of 23.7 million. So if the budget really was 50 million, then they lost almost half of yeah. the budget, which is not good. Yeah, they only made back barely half of their budget. Uh, there is, and like I mentioned earlier, uh, this can kind of like a passion project, but we're going to find out that there are some pretty bad money struggles just all throughout the production and development of this movie. And it's a little surprising because this movie has fairly big draws mm-hmm. aside from Martin Scorsese. Liam Neeson is a uh, huge, he's done a bunch of action movies most recently, but 
he's kind of retired from that now and he's going back to more of these dramatic roles also andrew garfield who was uh in hacksaw ridge i believe that was at the same oscars Mm-hmm. as silence and of course adam driver who many of you may know as kylo Ren, he that's probably his biggest claim to fame right now and the other actors are uh i'm probably not going to pronounce these correctly but have grace with me <laughs> uh Ch- chiaron hins isei ogata shinya sukamoto yoshi oida and yosuka kubozuka yeah, and even all of like Andrew Garfield, Driver, and Neeson, and even Scorsese himself, they worked on a very limited budget, and they didn't get paid. From what I understand, they didn't get paid nearly as much as they could have, but because they were working with Scorsese and because it's just the nature of the project, essentially this became something that was beyond money. Who cares about the money at this point? As long as we can get the project going. is Essentially, from what I understand, Scorsese's mindset. Um, especially when he wanted to get this kicked in the gear, like for real. It does make me sad to report that during that weekend at the box office, the Bye Bye Man came in at number three, Monster Trucks came in at number seven, and this movie I've never heard of called Sleepless came in at number eight. From everything I've heard, those are horrible movies. Yeah. And they just beat it out. And it makes sense because it's January, and people just kind of want to see something. They don't want to go see a three-hour movie about uh, 17th century Japan. Right. Eh, Even if they have heard of it, you know. It's unfortunate. It is, yeah. Also, I do want to mention who the cinematographer for this movie is. Uh, Rodrigo Prieto, Prieto. And he has two Oscar nominations. He did actually receive the Oscar nomination for this uh, film. And this was the only Oscar nomination for this film. I'll mention more about that in just a minute. He also was nominated for the movie Brokeback Mountain. He also did the movies 8 Mile, Alexander, Babel, State of Play, Wall Street 2, Water for Elephants, Argo, Wolf of Wall Street, Passengers, and of the most recently, he is working with Scorsese once again on the movie The Irishman, which will hit theaters next year. It's really interesting, his uh, repertoire, because some of these movies are Oscar-nominated, and some of them are Oscar winners. Some of them are great, some of them are met, and some of them are just puzzling. It's it's his. It's really interesting. Yeah, it is. And yeah, he's. this is, once again, not a... He's a pretty, pretty big name. I mean, I mean, obviously, if you haven't gone out of your way to look at the cinematographer for movies you may not really recognize this but yeah he's done quite a number of movies that are i mean pretty popular so i mean his name is not unknown technically speaking i am really shocked that this movie only received one oscar nomination which was of course best cinematography personally i think it should have been nominated for best picture best directing best adapted screenplay best uh possibly best actor in a leading role for andrew garfield and i just felt like this movie was really snubbed yeah i mean it did go up against i believe it went up against la la land won it that's right i remember it now this is last year yes yeah, so la la land ended up winning the best cinematography that is interesting that's a good that's a good comparison these two i don't know which one i'd pick 
because La La Land has a lot of dynamic moving shots, and this one is a bit more still. Um, interesting. I, yeah. I think I would be more so tempted, actually, to go with Silence. Okay. I would probably go for La La Land, but that's not to say that this movie looks gorgeous, because it does. And it has some really good cinematography. I mean, technically, all the ones that were that were nominated do, so... So I'm wondering, do you think this movie might have been snubbed because of its overtly Christian message? Hollywood is no friend to Christianity, mind you. Yeah, uh, it's it's possible, but I don't know. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. I think the, okay, the the real reason for the Oscars is they are looking for movies that impact society then and that year. Um, well, that's what it is. To, yeah. That's what it's become. It's become mostly a cultural, you know, flag of what is this relevancy today? It used to not be that way because yeah. we've got movies that are based on really old events that have won Best Picture. Right. Well, and they still pick movies that are that way too. But I think what I'm trying to say is that they're looking for movies that are more or less looking at society and how that impacts society. So, Take Arrival, for example, and that got a few awards, or nominations at least. Um, that one's looking at the universal language, right? Um, and then you have La La Land, which is very much a good-looking film. Um, may not impact society as much as maybe as much as a message as maybe Arrival does. But even with this, I feel like it could it could have gotten more nominations, and it's probably very possible that because of its very heavy. Because of it being heavy on Christian themes, that it was snubbed a bit more. Um, but I guess it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell because the Oscars are the Oscars can very very easily be controversial just in general with any kind of movie. So yeah, I'm going on the record and saying I believe this movie was snubbed so greatly just because it is overtly promoting. Christianity and the plight of Christians who have been persecuted for uh, millenniums, which I think is really unfortunate that that is it was snubbed. And because it, it does seem because it's Christian, they're not going to give it much credence. Anyway, on IMDb, it has a score of 7.2, which I personally think is surprisingly low. Yeah, I mean, I kind of understand it. It's a film that's quite slow-paced. Um, you have some pretty overt Christian themes in there, that which may push away at some people. I can see why it has a, sl- a low score, although um, I wish it had something higher. Uh, thankfully, on Rotten Tomatoes, the critics really did enjoy it. It has an 84% fresh critics rating and... Uh, 69% of the audience yeah. uh, said go for it as well. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right, though. Um, this is more one that the critics are going to eat up versus the audience. Uh, just in general, that's just how it is. Well, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the history of this movie getting made. Because, like Alan said, this is kind of 25 years in the making. Yeah! <laughs> it's good. It's got quite an interesting development because of everything that happened it, it really did so martin scorsese was originally introduced to shu shock shusako indo's book 
which, like I said, was written in 1966. And Scorsese read the book in 1989 when he was invited by Akira Kurosawa to Japan to play uh, Van Gogh in Kurosawa's film Dreams. And basically, Scorsese was like, I really would like to adapt this to film. This movie was already... uh, Well, I, I don't remember. There is another adaption of this uh, book as well. Yeah, it was done in 1971. Oh, okay. Yeah. And Scorsese did this movie called, uh, I don't know how to pronounce I think it's it. Cundin. Cundin. Yeah. Uh, which was, which came out in 97. And I believe it was like after that movie, he was like, okay, I want to do silence, but he then kept putting it on hold and signing on to other projects. Right. Yeah. See, he, and funny thing is, he actually had, the very first draft written out by 91. And from the years then on, he says, I don't like this draft, and then we'll just redo it. And he's did, he did this for quite a number of years, and he signed on with a group called, I think it's pronounced, uh, Ketchigori Pictures. And um, they were saying, they, he got funding for that. So they were gonna, he was going to team up with them to do Silence. And they, the contract was for, yeah, after Cundin, and then uh, that didn't happen. And then moved to after... Uh, a few other movies that he came out, but he couldn't get it done. He just didn't like where it was going. He really wanted it to be essentially perfect. And it, for whatever reason, he didn't like where it was. He didn't like where the script was at every time these movies came up. And so he kept pushing it back. I do know that in 2009, there was production on the film that was started. They, they scouted in Nagasaki, which was the original location for the book and yes. where the movie, the film is supposed to take place. And of course, it entered development hell for one reason or another. And then he started focusing on Shutter Island and Hugo instead. Yeah. And Hugo accidentally kind of was a pretty big bomb in the box office, unfortunately. Fortunately, it was Oscar nominated. Yes. And going on the record, I love Hugo. Yeah. I have seen it, but I, I can't exactly speak to it. Um, it's See, I was like half awake when I was watching it, so <laughs> <laughs> I can't exactly speak to uh, the quality in my own mind. Well, and then, of course, in December 2011, he said once again, Silence would be his next film. He had said that many times before in previous decades. Right. But then he went on to do The Wolf of Wall Street instead. Right. And uh, right before this, too, we were going to have Daniel Day-Lewis, Benicio Del Toro in this movie. Like they were, I think they were planned to be in it, mm-hmm. and then they both ended up dropping. And yes, we got Garfield and Liam Neeson and Adam Driver a couple years after that. But yeah, Wolf of Wall Street, he tried to get it up before Wolf of Wall Street, and then that didn't happen. Um, but it was right after Wolf of Wall Street that he said, I am devoting all of my time to getting silence developed and getting it out. And it happened. He eventually, uh, I mean, of course, we still have more to go through, but he did get it out after Wolf of Wall Street, but it took him still a number of years, which that movie came out in 2013, and it didn't release until 2016. Mm-hmm. So we still have a big patch of stuff to go through as well. And personally, I think Daniel Day-Lewis would have been superb in this film. I think he would have done a phenomenal job. I would have loved to have seen him as one of the priests. Mm -hmm. I think they probably would have cast him in uh, Liam Neeson's role, would be my guess. But I would have much preferred him in uh, Andrew Garfield's role as Rodriguez. But it seems like they wanted to go with younger 
Priest and Daniel Day-Lewis probably wouldn't have been able to do that. Uh, as for Benicio Del Toro, I can't really see him in this movie. Yeah, I don't know what their, what their mindset was with him, um, but... He would have been an interesting guy to have in. I don't know. Like I said, I don't know how well he would have worked, but they both ended up not being able to sign on uh, for, I think, scheduling issues or something like that. Uh, something else I learned was interesting is you see this face of Jesus. It's a painting mm-hmm. a number of times throughout the film, and that was done by the 17th century uh, painter. His name is El Greco. Okay. Gotcha. And like Alan said, everyone worked for much, they worked for lesser pay on this movie just to make sure they could get it all done. They all took uh, pretty good pay cuts. Yeah. Yeah. And um, there even was an accident on set, which ended up killing one of the contracted employees and injuring two others um, in one of the backlots. So what happened was a ceiling had fallen down, something happened with it, and it killed one of them and injured two others on set. I think it was, it may, have, it may have been in Taiwan. It was on set, though. Right, and this film ultimately ended up not being filmed in Japan. They chose yeah. Taiwan because Taiwan, the the location is gorgeous. I honestly don't know the difference, and I think they're expecting most audiences to not really know the difference between right. Taiwan and Japan. And there may not be that much geographical differences anyway and also taiwan was much cheaper yes yeah and for the pretty strict budget that they ended up happening that they ended up having uh this was a, a great thing to have which is pretty cheap filmmaking uh spots and stuff like that but we also run into some legal issues <laughs> with catchy gory pictures here in uh towards about the i think it was about 2012 um, what happened was Scorsese, when he signed on to do Silence after Cundin and then pushed it off so many times, uh, catchy pictures, catchy gory pictures is just like, hey, uh, you totally like kind of screwed us over with this. We paid $750,000, uh, to fund you and all this kind of stuff. And he kind of just kept putting it off and he promised that they would, that it would happen and he was contracted to do it after every single one of these movies. And so they wanted, one million to one and a half million dollars per film released after they had scheduled him to film silence and 20% of Scorsese's back in comp- compensation. And Scorsese essentially just said, that's ridiculous <laughs> because that is so much money to be reimbursed for. Anyways, they ended up settling it. The, the final decision is undisclosed, but they did end up settling it, um, kind of under the shadows. Um, the only, thing that I found of legal stuff is this, this written form that says, yeah, they settled it and that's it. They didn't give me the specifics as to what had went down. So basically what you're saying is it's a miracle this film even got made. Yes. This, if it hasn't been, uh, if it hasn't been, I mean, kind of evident already, this is very much Scorsese's passion project. He's wanted to do this film for years and he just, for whatever reason, hasn't been able to get it out, and even went through development hell for 25 years, went through some serious legal issues for a while, which I think threatened the release of the movie or the production of it. So, yeah, this, uh, he had to go through a lot, a lot to get this movie made, and he even said, he was asked about this, why in the world would you make this movie if you if all this is going to happen? And he said, as you get older, ideas co- go and come, questions, answers, loss of the answer again, and more questions, and this is what really interests me. 
Yes, the cinema and the people in my life and my family are most important, but ultimately, as you get older, there's got to be more. Silence is just something that I'm drawn to in that way. It's been an obsession. It has to be done. It's a strong, wonderful, true story and a thriller, a thriller in a way, but deals with those questions when he was asked, why would you do this? Which is really interesting because if I haven't seen a movie in my life where you can just tell the the director is just all over this and you can see his fingerprints everywhere... This is it because he didn't care about how much money it cost. He just wanted to make it just for it, maybe just for himself, uh, just to say this is how much I love cinema because he could. In it, being the big name that he is, hopefully he would have a big you know impact. Um, maybe he did. The money doesn't. The money doesn't exactly say that. But even for him, he's like I could really care less about the money. I just want to get enough money to make it in his mind. In his mind. So we are about to get into discussing the movie, which comes with spoilers. So if you have not seen Silence, it is actually available for streaming for Amazon Prime members. Mm -hmm. Or you could run down to your rental store or just stream it through any of your favorite uh, streaming options. Nowadays, it's amazing. You don't have to just go to the rental store anymore. I know. It's crazy. But like I said, we are about to spoil silence, so if you don't want silence spoiled, and honestly, I would say don't don't spoil this movie for yourself, because I would say this movie is rewarding with, uh, with watching it. But anyway, I am about to tell you the plot, so you have been warned. Now, the plot of this movie is fairly straightforward. It is about two Jesuit priests named Father Rodriguez and Father Garupe, played by Andrew Garfield and Adam Driver, respectively. And they have received a letter that uh, one of the fathers of their order, who they both knew personally, has apostatized, which means to leave the faith uh, he has left the Christian faith, and this father, Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, was originally a missionary in Japan, but they got a letter from him uh, seven years after he wrote it saying that he, uh, they, they have learned that he is no longer a Christian and he has conformed to the Japanese culture. So they ask to go to Japan to find Father Ferreira and get to the bottom of what's going on. And they use this Japanese guide named Kichichiro, and he proves to be quite the interesting character. And he has one of the most powerful story arcs, I would say, in this film. So once they do get to Japan, it consists of them kind of going to different villages and just doing different Christian practices trying to stay secret and alive and ultimately they are found out by the Japanese authorities who persecute the Christians in horrible ways and ultimately end up murdering them if they do not step on the images of Christianity that they have confiscated. So uh, Father Rodriguez and Father Grupe are separated and the film mostly follows Rodriguez from here on out and how he is constantly tested in his faith and ultimately he he does find Father Ferreira who in fact has apostatized and uh, ultimately Rodriguez does step on the image of Christ but he 
hears Christ finally after being in silence for so long, and Christ says, it is okay to step, you are with me now. And Ferreira and Rodriguez spend the rest of their days just uh, finding hidden Christian images and rooting out the rest of that Christian iconography. And the movie does seem to at first end on a kind of dark, somber note where Rodriguez is just this beaten down man who has lost his faith. But uh, in the final scene, he has died after a long life. And you see that he is holding a cross, which does give hope that he has actually still remained a Christian in his heart, if not outwardly. Yeah, so I mean, like you said, I mean, pretty straightforward. There, it's really this is a movie about the journey, not necessarily the uh, the story. It's about because I mean, if you look at it, even from just like a summary on like IMDb, literally the summary is just that two Jesuit priests go to Japan where there's persecution happening to find what had happened to their good friend uh, Liam Neeson. And so that's essentially the plot summary. It's very, very straightforward. And this is, like I said, one that is not necessarily about the story. It's more about the journey and what exactly that comes of, that comes with. Right. And it's definitely a spiritual journey. Mm -hmm. How much persecution can one person take? What does it mean to hear from God? What What is crossing the line right. um, between faith and apostatizing? Or is that more of an internal thing? Or does it... Because the Japanese routinely say, uh, the, the persecutors say, it's just a formality. Just because you step on it doesn't mean you're losing your faith. Is that true or is that a lie? That's what we'll get into here. Yeah, and I mean... At multiple points, and it becomes, uh, they even hammer it harder as the movie goes on. But they tell Rodriguez, um, you're letting this happen. Like, if, if you don't renounce your faith and, or I guess apostatize in front of everybody else, then they're going to suffer for you because you are not doing what we're saying. You know, you are the one, because in their minds, the Christians are more or less, I think they even said this in the movie, the Christians are more or less a disease. Um, they have, to be fair, the Christians and the Japanese in the story have very different beliefs. Um, and we'll get into more of the specifics here in a second. But what they want to happen is they want to essentially lose, make the Christians here lose their faith. And they want to control um, everybody else and in their own minds, which comes back later, of course. But yeah, it's interesting how we have this big conflict between these two faiths. But one thing that I'm sure we'll get into is how, I guess, uh, abstract the Japanese faith is, I mean, compared to the Christian, but um, it kind of is and isn't explained. But does I guess it's not really given a name as to what exactly the faith is, but it is also never something that I felt was just overbearing, whereas the Christian part, is, which is the most important part of this, of course, uh, is ma is made sure to be very clear as to what it is. The Japanese faith is not necessarily that way, which we'll get into what the ideals of that are in a second. The opening of this movie is very interesting, and honestly, the end is kind of the same way. There's just these sounds of the wilderness, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden there's silence, and this very simple font of the title. Right. I, 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 I liked it. Yeah, it 
kind of reminded me of Jurassic Park, but two completely different movies, of course. Um, yeah, these these nature sounds, I'm going to go out here and say it, uh, the cicada is very prominently prominently used, like a lot. Um, of course, being in Taiwan, you're going to have those in different uh, assortment of bugs and insects and stuff like that that makes sound. But it's, this cicada comes back more than once. And so I looked up, well, what is the meaning of cicada? Like, what is the sound? What is that supposed to represent? And cicada more or less represents, uh, as said here, personal change, rebirth, and transformation, which which we hear very prominently here in the opening. Many, many times down in the movie, we'll hear just these nature sounds, prominently the cicada. And so, yeah, just setting up this and then hitting us with silence, and there's like literally nothing happening just for the title card. We kind of get this sense of nature, of course, and then once again, rebirth. There's going to be something that we're going to be building to. And the first thing we see is um, this essentially torture with these hot springs and Liam Neeson being shown everything that's happening and saying that you can stop this if you denounce, if you apostatize, you know. Right. We do open with Liam Neeson's character, Father Ferreira, and the other priests as well and it's interesting because father ferreira in this scene is very much how father rodriguez is where they're showing all these people being tortured Mm -hmm. and it's basically saying if you do this then we will stop torturing them essentially and yeah it's, it's a little hard to watch though and especially once you learn that they asked to be tortured to demonstrate their faith and strength and god and they're tortured by these extremely hot water from these hot springs being uh, poured onto their skin right right and they even say that with the ladles that they poke holes into mm-hmm. um those are those hurt even worse because the water slowly trickles down mm-hmm. onto the skin and this is something that i found is very inter- interesting is the depiction of torture it's yes it is very brutal but at the same time it could have been so much more brutal and this is something that I, that me and some people have an issue with, with maybe Passion of the Christ, is that it does, maybe, maybe it is an accurate uh, depiction, but it is maybe overly brutal. Whereas this one, he kind of pulls it back and it's like, uh, how about, yes, we show this, but the main focus is not on the physical torture, but the psychological torture. And we spend a lot of time, especially with Rodriguez, getting into the mind of what does it mean to be psychologically tortured in this way? And, well, of course, we're getting to that. But, yeah, this these hot springs, really the only thing we see is that the, the skin is red, but the pain on the people's faces and their agonizing screams really sets into, really gets in mind, this is how much this really hurts. I mean, it's kind of obvious because of how hot the water is. But at the same time, it's not, I never found it to be ever overly brutal and overly maybe violent, which I found to be very respectful because of how many movies like to just kind of go that route in general. Right, and the like the horrifying aspect is not because it's visually graphic because it isn't it's not visually graphic really at all, right. It's more so just the fact that these people did nothing wrong and they asked to be tortured just to demonstrate their faith. And it's just more of this like really big crisis of conscience. Like, what do I do? Do I just sit here and let these people suffer? Or I do, I I can do something to end this. And the movie does, and the film does an incredible job of getting into 
Father Rodriguez's mindset of because he sees people tortured over and over again. He sees people murdered. And what does that do to a person to see that uh, happen to another? And it's really more so psychological and uh, it's mostly spiritual warfare, actually, Mm -hmm. instead of the physical aspect is focused on, which I think Scorsese really did the right thing by not making this movie graphic because it easily could have been. And from the trailers, honestly, it would kind of lead me to believe this could be a very graphic movie. It, 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 it is still rated R. Yeah, I, I mean, it's rated R literally for just violence. Right. That's it. And I can see that because I just can't see this movie being a PG-13 mm-hmm. with the subject matter that it deals with. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it, it, also, it is also interesting that these hot springs, and they, they say this, of course, in the movie, they're called hells, um, the way that they use this torture. And they, even the movie count points it out and says, probably in mockery of what we believe, but at the same time also telling the truth because of how much these, how much the pain is so agonizing for these people. So yeah, the, and we'll come to find out there are, there are some interesting torture that they, that the Japanese use, but when it all comes down to it, it's all psychological, which is very smart on their end because, um, using a more psychological approach is going to elicit better results. I mean, it would take longer, but it elicit a better results for um, essentially their confirmation that when you do apostatize, you mean it, you know, especially with the fathers that come into the place. Like they, they are brutal with them because they don't really do much physically to them, but they have to sit and they have to watch as the people around them are tortured and they can't really do anything about it except for apostatize, which for them is essentially means they're damned because of their faith. Yes. And I should mention that the opening of the movie takes place in 1633, but then when we jump to the reading of the letter, that is in 1640. But we do learn that the Japanese Christians have been persecuted for the past 20 years. Right. And it seems to be saying this priest, honestly, they're priests they're talking with in the beginning, and then definitely the Japanese persecutors later on are saying that Christianity has done more harm than good because it's causing uh, widespread persecution and death instead of bringing peace and life. And that's interesting because nowhere in the scriptures does it say that Christianity is going to bring about peace because, first of all, when they start spreading the gospel of the very first Christians, historically there was widespread persecution. Right. And this is exactly what happens in here. So I I think the... I, I find that very interesting that it's a natural concern, but one that shouldn't be too surprising, I guess, yeah. to these fathers that they are being persecuted right and this is a story because at the time that this uh is set in um japan was kind of going through a big shift Mm -hmm. um they had just gotten a pretty new political power and at one point they were even accepting of christianity but because their ideals and the christian ideals clashed a lot because we get and we'll see this very very often this is essentially what the whole movie is based around is what we see versus what's in the heart and what is essentially outside of what we can understand 
Um, and so we have this battle, and this is the this is easily one of the bigger themes is versus um, what we are able to comprehend versus things that are out of our control that we can't comprehend. And for the Japanese, this is they are very much on the side of well, what I see is what is true, and they even come out and say that at a couple of points in the movie where uh, they believe in nature, everything that they can see, everything that they can touch. Everything that's around them that they that is physical, that's what they believe in, right? And so when the Christians come in and are talking about this higher power and how they need to give up their soul and all this kind of stuff to something that they can't even begin to think, okay, well, what even is that? Or something that is very much very intangible to them, they don't like that. And especially now in this story, because they've been converting and they've been changing their ideals, this kind of what led them to begin persecuting is because they're going against their ideals. And even still, there are groups that um, Father Rodriguez says, hey, uh, I'm kind of worried that they're worshiping the idols and not like the true person and not like the true thing that they're supposed to be worshiping because they are wanting. And at one point he goes to, I think, Goto, he they are needing something physical, and he gives away everything that he has, even breaks apart his rosary and gives it to people. And he is when he says, I'm scared that they're going to worship these physical things versus the actual thing that they should be worshiping, which is a really interesting idea because, and this also comes back later, we'll get to that. Um, it's, it's an interesting idea that it's pitting what we can see versus what is intangible and what we can't necessarily comprehend. And I think this brings up a good lesson to Christians who are Christians and they do believe they're firm in their faith, not to judge other Christians because of seemingly outward actions or question their motives where you don't even know because Rodriguez, he's like, it's possible they may be doing this, but I'm not sure. And the movie goes to follow him how he does seem like rock solid in his faith, but then he gets in so much doubt and turmoil. Oh, and yeah. yeah. I think that's actually a fairly common thing to every Christian. And even if you're not a Christian, everybody goes through times of extreme doubt, but then times of you do just have faith in what's going on in your life. So I do think that's important that this movie brings up is – just because you have had all of this training in theology and etc cetera, etc cetera, that doesn't mean you're a better christian than these people who probably don't know as much as you because there's no possible way to gauge someone's faith or just be like well i studied more therefore i i have more faith than you right right and and this even this is absolutely brought up especially because they I wouldn't say that they question their faith. It's not in this, not in this part of the movie, but they are shown that maybe these people have a stronger faith than we do. And which is funny because they are Jesuit priests. They're supposed to be really invested and their whole lives are engraved into the, into the Christian culture, into the Christian faith and all sorts of like that. They're supposed to be those that, that know everything about everything and that they are so in touch with the, with God that, um, they, really are rock solid, like you said. But when it comes down to it and they meet these people who have faith that is, to them, unworldly because of how much... Because of, they know the danger, right? There are There's more than village, but they know the danger that if they were found out to be Christians, they would be killed. They would be tortured and they would be... They most certainly would die. But they still believe that this is the truth because of um, other priests that had come by before them. 
And it's crazy to think that, yes, even though Rodriguez has this fear that maybe they are worshiping, worshiping physical objects versus other, what they should be worshiping, um, it's clear that their faith is maybe not as rock solid as they had initially thought because these people are so willing to listen to them and wanting to grow in their faith because they have nobody that's like, I guess they have, they don't have a person who's willing, who can forgive their sin. Like they don't have a father or anything that's around them, but they believe and they worship what they have come to know. And even then as limited as that may be, their faith is still something that is like maybe even brings up. And like I said, maybe even better or maybe even more engraved into them than it is for the Jesuit priests. And this becomes from here on out becomes a big like spiritual battle between especially Rodriguez and Grupa as well. But we see it more through Rodriguez. I do find it a very beautiful example of the people they first encounter on the island of Tomogi. The Japanese Christians, how they keep their faith during persecution, even though they have every earthly reason not to. And not too far into the film, we're introduced to the two different sides of how should this be handled. Because Rodriguez, without hesitation, tells them to trample. And Grupe says, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. You cannot trample. And this seems to be the big struggle of the movie is this uh, kind of internal persecution. Uh, what does an outwardly act mean for your inward faith? And this is also very much dealt with in the character of Kichichiro. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who has quite the story arc. And we do learn that eight years prior, he did blaspheme God by stepping on the face of, of Christ, whatever symbol he stepped on. Yeah. And Kichichiro could very much be representative of, say... Uh, Judas yes. in the Bible. Um, I'm pretty sure that was... Oh, I'm pretty sure this did happen. I, I can also say that that's... I'm pretty sure that that's very true. That is what the intent of Scorsese and the writer of the book were they were going for. Um, that, yes, Kajijiro is very much on the side. Even At one point, he even gets paid money to turn in uh, Rodriguez, the priest, um, to the officials and, and stuff like that. And he even comes back and says to Rodriguez later, I didn't take the money. And very, very representative of Judas in the Bible, except he has a better outcome than what Judas does, of course. But yes, Kichichiro, and I would even say he's maybe even representative of man in general, where he is constant, or maybe even the Israelites in the Bible, because at, at one point in the Bible, they're just wandering the desert and they are oftentimes building themselves up and saying, getting closer to God and then just falling off of it. And just this endless cycle of them and caught in the desert for 40 years. And maybe that's what Kijijiro, and I can almost say that that's very much true, is his, maybe a, an allegory for his character, is that he's very much somebody representative of man, the Israelites, Judas. They're somebody who is just in this kind of in the cycle of um, denouncing their faith and then building it back up again, asking for forgiveness, asking for repentance of those sins from the Father. And even at one point, Rodriguez kind of gets a bit adamant with him, and he's like, "Okay, fine, you know." Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, I can see, I can see with, that he's very much representative of all those kinds of things. He has a lot of things in his character, and he becomes one of the most important pieces of the story the later we get into it. And I think if we're being honest with ourselves, uh, 
Kichichiro and and of course Father Rodriguez, but Kichichiro is also us because we do so many things throughout our lives where we will betray someone or something, come back and ask for forgiveness, and then we'll do it all over again. I am reminded of the scripture in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, where Jesus explains that we must forgive those who ask for mercy an unlimited amount of times. If we withhold forgiveness, then the Father will withhold forgiveness from us. And I think that's what we see Rodriguez struggle with, because at first Rodriguez says, can we trust this guy? And I think it's Garupe who says Jesus trusted worse. Yeah. And then he also uh, comes around and uh, Kichichiro is very much the Judas figure. But then again, he's also very much us. But it's that uh, act of forgiveness that ultimately I believe to his redeeming in the end. Because what if he hadn't? forgiven him once he's like no i've forgiven you so many times you're beyond forgiveness now then i think the ending of this movie would have been much different and i mm -hmm. think it also would have severely impacted rodriguez and he probably wouldn't have been uh redeemed as well right right i do also want to say that all of the japanese christians in tomogi do trample but they won't spit on the cross except kichichiro and I do admire that they won't go that far, but Rodriguez says, I must believe Kichichiro suffered along with the others. Right. And once again, that introduces this idea of like our own personal faith in Christianity is we can't gauge who is feeling what because what must be hard for us may not be hard for them. If that makes sense. Right. But yeah, we do have this very big theme of, especially with Kichichiro's character, this theme of shame. Where, um, yeah, like you said, Rodriguez at this point, when he does spit on the cross and runs away, and he said, and Rodriguez says, I, I hope, um, I, I, I can understand, you know, if he's suffering in some way, which I'm sure is what's happening because each time that he denounces and apostatizes, he has this, we, we, you can tell, he has this, like, shame on his face that he did it and he always comes back to um he always comes back to rodriguez and asks for forgiveness even though he really shouldn't deserve it rodriguez still even even if it is reluctant he still does give it to him and yeah i think that that's once again we're going to get into those psychological um warfare themes in here because we have this where he's very shameful of what he's done um, but at the same time he could go free and he could not have to do, have to do this not to mess with this at all ever again and they not only him that they are doing this to but everyone who they think is a christian they say you know this is so easy to step on it or you know to spit on it call call the virgin a whore isn't that easy you know and they're more or less looking at the and that, that that's of course the biggest downfall of the japanese here in this scene or i guess in the whole movie is that yes they are making the people here physically denounce their faith but of course this and once we get to the end what does it mean in the heart? What are they actually feeling? And that's something that they just can't touch. There's no way they can. I mean, they can try and influence them as much as they want. And this happens with Rodriguez. They get so far with him. And he even, at the very end of the movie, becomes a part of the government with 
uh, Liam Neeson's character. But when it's all said and done, and we see when he dies, we see that, yes, he may have done these things, but it's what's in the heart that really counts. You can't do anything with that. I mean, you can try, but it, when you get down to it, you still have the free will to choose what the person wants. You can't choose that for them. And, of course, we have that big battle once again with free will, which is another just kind of can of worms that is just all over the place in this movie. And I think what's important to realize is, although it does seem that these Christians throughout the movie do deny Christ or they do things to stab him in the back, ultimately they don't ever, you know, finally call it quits. They don't ever finally leave and fully deny Christ because we see later on, because Kichichiro keeps coming back. Now, he doesn't have to be because they already set him free. He can go live his life. But clearly his conscience is so heavy that he keeps putting himself in furthering dangerous situations that could ultimately cause his death. And of course he does step and do whatever they ask every single time and runs away but keeps coming back. But nevertheless, uh, him and Rodriguez, especially in that final scene of uh, them together where they talk, where they both uh, pray together. And it does remind me of uh, Matthew 10, 32 through 33, where it says, if you confess me before men, then I'll confess you before my father in heaven. But if you deny me before men, then I'll deny you before my father in heaven. So this also kind of brings up this question is, if our faith is not outward, if these Japanese Christians are outwardly denying their faith then is their faith real now once again this isn't a question for us to answer but it is something for each of us to personally struggle with because ultimately what the movie is saying is that only god knows and that's what's most important because if we start saying that we know like oh they stepped on it they must not be christian well I don't even know what I would do in that situation if I would or not. And of course, Rodriguez and Garupe have very different approaches to what you should do. But ultimately, I don't think it's even up to them to say what's right and wrong. Right, right, exactly. It really blurs the line of what is right and wrong. Uh, because, yes, it is an outward display of, no, I, I have now apostatized. But just because you physically apostatize, once again, doesn't mean much. Maybe, maybe the whole point of the Japanese is to um, make the others doubt that this faith is real or that this faith can really help them in the long run. And maybe that's very true, but at the same time, the way that they're going about it, um, it's, it's very difficult to change the heart. Because, like I said, like I mentioned before, you're getting into free will at that point. And um, it's not necessarily free will, but you're getting into something that you really can't control because it's hard to control things that aren't exactly physical. Um, <laughs> so when you get into like the heart and things like that and what is truly being felt and what they really are thinking in the soul, it becomes very, very messy. And that's I think part of the reason why uh, they have such different ideals, the Japanese do, and they're very much worshipping more of these physical objects than they are more of the spiritual, more of the soul, and things like that, more intangible things that the Christians are. It's this battle between, once again, what is what can we feel and touch and um, what can we measure, what is physical to us versus something that, okay, well, what do we feel? It's very much a, I guess you could say, uh, 
fact versus feeling, or maybe even something that's physical versus non-physical. Things like that. This is a constant reminder of what exactly it means, not only to be a Christian, but also it's interesting that Scorsese would even go this far, because this is one of the reasons why it took him so long to write this, is he wanted to get an accurate depiction of faith, which um, it took him years to figure out what is the best way to show this. And I think that he hit the nail right on the head. And the way that he displays this faith, even if somebody isn't a Christian, they can at least begin to empathize um, with these two characters and what they're going through and why they believe and why they want to keep their faith and why they want to help these people. I think it's interesting because Martin Scorsese directed the film The Last Temptation of Christ, which was a huge controversy in the public arena between Christians and non-Christians as to whether it was blasphemous or whether it was kind of an interesting portrayal that explored maybe more human aspects of Christianity. Well, this isn't a review for that movie, and I won't really give you my thoughts on that here. I have seen it, but... Yes, I think it's really incredible that Scorsese did this movie and he accurately portrays the Christian spiritual life so well. Yeah, and I wouldn't say, I mean, obviously um, persecution like this doesn't happen in America. Um, It does, things like this do happen in the world, but they're more or less in countries where um, they're pretty much against those kind of beliefs and ideals. Um, So... Of course, you don't get anything like this in America. That's, I think, even illegal because it's considered discrimination. Oh, yeah. But when you get into those other countries, which is essentially what they were doing here, um, you do get things like this. And there, I think that this is probably, at least as far as I know, the best depiction of, I would say, not just the Christian faith and what it, you know, what does it mean to be Christian, but also just Christian. Christian persecution in general, because things like this do happen. Um, and it's, I mean, it's not really, I mean, even ISIS at one point was beheading Christians and stuff like that. And we have other groups that do things like this as well. But those are, those are, of course, those are groups that are way off in across the sea, across the pond. They're uh, out of our reach. We're not, unless you are actively going out there, you're not going necessarily going to be somebody who's persecuted um, in our world in that way. You, maybe, maybe, you know, Someone saying something to you can be considered discrimination, but here in America, you, you can't just do this, of course. So it is interesting that this movie, um, I would even say, is an accurate depiction of of just persecution in this way, being that it is a period piece. But then we also have movies like God's Not Dead 2, which is another Christian movie, which for some reason pitted the Christian persecution as more of a court case. And, and now going down that road is just a whole can of worms that I'd rather not get into. But what I'm trying to say is that there are good ways and bad ways of, of showing persecution. And this is a way that I think works because it's not something, it's, it's very much a spiritual battle, right? It's a difference between ideals, a difference between uh, ways of life versus a court case, which is all about more or less about money and things like that. It's much, much, much different. And for me, this works on levels so much better than God's Not Dead 2. I think one of probably the most beautiful scenes in this film and one of the most powerful is the death of Mokichi. Rodriguez says it took Mokichi four days to die and him singing the hymn at the end of his life on earth. I just, I thought it was like so poignant 
how even till the end he was still faithful even though he knew he was about to leave this world and it just showed how i think this was probably the best example in the movie how this life is not what it's not the end all be all right and it's kind of like uh father ferrera and father rodriguez seem to think that in some way this life is the end all be all i think they're more so worried about people that are suffering and they would rather them not suffer and just not be persecuted but once again that's just an unrealistic thought if they're going to be a christian i mean like i said in the very beginning of christianity it was immediately persecuted and i think this movie this part the scene that i'm talking about presents probably the best contrast where these three including mokichi were like okay we'll go to death we will die for it and later on rodriguez meets this uh meet some i think farmers who have been captured and the lady says it's horrible here you know this isn't life you know we're pretty much slaves we have to work and do this and there's no joy and happiness and she says that we would go to i think they call it per pariso or something it's yeah. the equivalent of paradise she said we'd rather go to paradise than stay here and rodriguez is i can't really remember his reaction but he seems to be kind of conflicted with that mindset he's like well yeah but he's like would you rather be persecuted right now he's like i don't know i think that's also another big thing that's set up in this movie is is it better to live now you know peacefully without persecution and that means sacrificing a lot in the way of your faith or is it better to just stick up for it and then go to paradise right now yeah, yeah, it's very much what is the best route to take. Is it because the easiest route is not always the best route? Uh, very rarely is it ever the best route. But it's it's very yeah, like you said, it's very much. Would you rather get it over with and go to paradise now, or would you like to, would you rather suffer and things like that? And even in the end, you know, when uh, Rodriguez hears Jesus and says it's okay to trample, and he says you've been gone for so long, and he said no, I was suffering right along with you. Um, it's very representative of the fact that it's not necessarily about you. It's, I mean, technically, yes, but at the same time, it's about what's inside. You know, it's not necessarily because it was, the actions, yes, they do. Actions do portray what happens inside of us. But at the same time, um, it's very much a, a theme of what is right versus what is easiest. And so we get that kind of stuff. And yeah, like you said, when uh, Mokichi dies, he's the one who, it takes him four days. And they even said his body was so full of water that when they put him on the fire to burn because they wanted to scatter the bones, they couldn't give him a proper Christian burial. Smoke, um, steam rose out of his body because of just how much water he had soaked in. And it's interesting that they would, I would even say they mocked the crucifixion by having these three guys up on the waterfall. And the two, of course, on the sides die first. But the guy in the middle, who is, of course, going to be Jesus, representative of Jesus' death, he dies last. And he ends on a note where he's singing a hymn, which is, yeah, like you said, a very, very beautiful and powerful moment in the movie, which um, just goes to show how much he was holding on, how much he held on to the very like last minute where he, I think his body gave out from exhaustion is what it said, which, um, which is, once again, very rep representative of Jesus' death on the cross. 
Also, it's interesting because Garupe feels that these people died for them, and Rodriguez says they did not die for us, Garupe. They died for their faith. But then later on, Rodriguez is presented with the same notion from Father Ferreira, where he says, he's like, these people didn't die for their faith. He said they died for you. They died because of you. And it's interesting because every time there is like a persecution scene, they seem to always look to the father that is closest to them. What should I do? What If I do this, am I doing it wrong? And ultimately, I, I, I did find that to be very interesting because we can't just always look to our spiritual leader to tell us what to do. We have to, if the faith is real, then you have to make your own choices, be prayerful about it, and then live with the consequences. And I, I do think it's interesting how that is flipped, how Rodriguez seems so strong and fervent in the beginning, and then he does let this doubt creep in. And even fairly early on here, he does talk about how he's tempted to despair. Is he just praying to nothing? Your silence is terrifying. I'm praying, but I'm lost. And I found it really poignant when he says, how can I explain his silence to these people who have endured so much? Right. Yeah. And that is a genuine concern is, okay, well, is what he's preaching, is it even the right thing? Right. Is it, is what he's saying, is it actually impacting them positively in the end or are they not getting anything at all? It's a genuine concern, and even once it's flipped on its head there at the end, um, I'd say it's something that is a very important question for this movie to ask. Because, yes, we even mentioned this earlier back in the beginning, um, they have these objects of, that represent their faith. And when Rodriguez comes to Godo, he breaks apart his rosary, and he gives up absolutely everything that he owns. And he questions, is this right for them to worship these physical idols? And so, once again, that question comes back is, well did I actually make a big impact on this group of people because do they know what they're supposed to do? Do they know the faith well enough um, to make the right decision? And it is an interesting, it's an interesting um, conflict because we kind of get an answer, but kind of don't. And that's kind of one thing that this movie decks to do is it brings up questions, but not always answers. And some may see that as a criticism. I would say that that's the best part of this movie is how many questions it doesn't answer and leaves up to the audience to think about themselves after they've seen this movie and experienced it. And it almost seems to insinuate that Rodriguez's and even Ferreira's uh, teachings have in some way been their downfall because they've been maybe too caught up in the practices and that could be their own fault and not the fault of the church it could be that they relied too much on their teachings and status and ability and saying well i know i know too much to fail and then when they are presented with these doubts and god doesn't give some swift easy deliverance well then they call everything into question but we see the opposite with the Japanese Christians because their faith is much simpler and it is not clouded by all of these fears that have been built upon probably decades of these uh, customs that they have probably put too much faith in. I would say that's possibly a reason why when their faith is tested, it's not really... Uh, it's more of like this kind of academic faith where they are safely away. Then when they are in the mission field, it's 
uh, this real faith that is messy, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is, and there is also um, another interesting thing is that the priests themselves also begin to question because Groupie at one point says, "I feel like a coward." Because they're separating at this point, they're going two different ways, and he's and he's like, I feel like a coward for doing this because all, all they're doing is running, and they're running and hiding at this point in the movie. All oh, that's all they've done since they've gotten to, to Japan, and so it's interesting to see these priests who, like, I don't think we, we talked about this earlier, um, who essentially are supposed to be very, very grounded in their faith. Now they're doubting everything, and I mean, maybe not the faith itself, but they're just like they're doubting their own actions and seeing is what we're doing the right thing. And it's very human to, uh, to question those things because it's interesting that these guys are not shown to be perfect. They're very imperfect, and we see them struggle a lot in the beginning um, together as they are very much like we're locked up in this shack. And they're essentially slowly kind of like losing their minds mm-hmm. because they are come to make change, but they don't know how much change they're making. And it isn't until they get the questioning and stuff like that, they kind of begin to see, okay, well, how much of, a fa- of an effect have we made with these people? Yeah, I love the fact that this, that they made these priests, Grupe and Rodriguez, all, like I said earlier, almost as if they have uh, maybe less faith as the others that they're preaching to, which they then learn themselves, that they kind of teach each other. But then they learn, they then, especially Rodriguez, they learn more as what does it mean like you said, more simplified, um, more easy, maybe more easier to understand, things like that for them to grow more in their faith, As even though they are very deep and very com- you know, all the complexities and stuff like that of Christianity, now they're looking at it from a completely different perspective. Uh, and I do find it interesting around the time Kichichiro betrays Rodriguez, Rodriguez is thinking about... Uh, jesus's last words to judas what you will do do quickly right was he angry at judas and i think the kind of surface reading is rodriguez is thinking this about kichichiro but i believe rodriguez is feeling this way because he's thinking about himself as judas and he is uh, slowly betraying christ he is a priest so he is like one of the apostles that was brought into the inner circle of christ to go and feed the sheep but he hasn't been doing the best job of that and it's telling when the people on tomogi island said it is you who feed us and but he doesn't he probably doesn't feel that way i was upon my first viewing surprised that kichichiro betrayed rodriguez but upon my second viewing it made sense yeah, and I like the fact that they don't take Kichichiro's character and make him a plot device. Yes. Um, he could be, some may think that he is here in the beginning, but it's really after this point in the movie, um, he's not necessarily a plot device anymore. He becomes a character who, yes, moves a plot along, but becomes more of somebody who begins to change. Um, we see him a couple more times. He does still do the same thing, but at the same time, it feels like there's something different. Like, of course, we're, exce- we're expecting him to betray... And, and stuff like that. But at the same time, it feels like there's a personal growth. And he never becomes a plot device. I, at least I didn't think he did. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm glad they didn't go that route. I, I definitely would agree. Yeah. Now, were you ever expecting to see Father Ferreira in this movie come back? Because we get so far into this movie and I expect, okay, because we do see him go to the beach and he sees Garupe. He's like, oh, I'm going to see Father Ferreira. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, he probably will, but it wasn't. It was Group A. So I did think we would never see Father Ferreira again. Yeah, I was I was kind of thinking the same thing on my first viewing. Um, but at the same time, because they had heard rumors, they didn't believe the rumors at the time. But they've come to find out that maybe there are some really good truth to these rumors that Father Ferreira has become a part of like the council uh, in Japan here. Um, so, yeah, I was thinking well, at first, I was like, maybe not, but then... As we heard the rumors that, yeah, he's a high official, I was like, maybe we will. Uh, and it kind of keeps it under wraps until we actually do meet Father Ferreira there at the end. But, yeah, it's it's something that is just, once again, shrouded in doubt because we don't know what's true and what isn't true. We have, we bring told things, but we don't know necessarily if it is or isn't true. That's a really good point about how even on the level of the audience is kept in doubt whether... For Father Ferreira did apostatize, right? Or whether he didn't, and I do think it was the right move to really keep that in mystery. And we don't even see Father Ferreira until he doesn't come back until over two hours into the movie. Yeah, he essentially shows up for the climax of the movie that, it, in that whole scene. And there even still is about like forty minutes. Yeah, oh, left yeah. of the movie. But I gotta say, I do really like the exchange. And from here on out, I think the movie, I would say the movie gets really meaty, if that makes sense. Like, we've had a lot of meat to go with, but there's so much packed in towards this kind of uh, ending area here that is still, you know, quite long. But there's just kind of like so much to contemplate. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially, I would say once when, once... Garupe, no, not Garupe, but once Rodriguez is uh, captured by the Inquisitor, we get this little taste that something's wrong. He's kind of going insane. He's beginning to envision things. He sees Christ in this pool of water, mm-hmm. things like that. We're getting this little taste that uh, maybe he's not all right in the head as he used to be. And then the Inquisitor shows up. And then from here on out is we've seen him, uh, see, we've seen him view others being persecuted um, from his own level. Now he's going to be forced to watch persecution um, from the level of the Inquisitor and his cabinet and things like that. It's very interesting that they decided to... um, They decided to take half of the movie. uh, and It's interesting that they took the movie and cut it in half, essentially, with his character, where he sees what's going to happen beforehand, and then after the second half he has to experience and he has to endure what's going to happen in the second half. And we kind of get that he's kind of going maybe a little crazy here. He's beginning to lose his mind because this is something that he's not not only not, only not used to, but is also something that is, he's seeing his, uh, his work kind of backfire on him. I did think that was a dynamic scene when he sees his reflection and it's the face of Christ that he has been imagining through this painting. Right. And it does remind me of the verse Paul writes in Philippians where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So in a way, it's kind of like he's thinking if I live, I'm still living this, you know, Christ-like persecution, but it's that death part that really trips him up because he doesn't seem ready to die and he's definitely not ready to let his fellow christians die and and he even learns he's like he even learns that they have supposedly apostatized but he's saying it's you 
it's you that's holding them back. It's Rodriguez supposedly is holding them back. If Rodriguez has to apostatize, yeah. and then they'll let them go, which is really cruel to do. Yeah, and this basically for the last hour and 30 minutes or so is uh, Rodriguez basically stuck in this cage. Yes. Um, but before we get to there, I do want to talk about the scene where with Garubi's death because this, I mean, at this point we haven't really, we haven't seen Garubi at all. It moves along. We're only following Rodriguez at this point. Uh, I would have liked a bit more development with Garubi's character and just in kind of in general, because when this scene happens, uh, you do get some really genuine like emotions that are coming from him. But I would love to see, I guess I'd love to ex- explore more of his mindset than we do, than what, than what we get. But that being said, this scene with, Father Guerrera um, having to watch. This is kind of, once again, a taste of what's going to happen later in the movie. We see, and then we also have the translator who's like, you know, kind of egging him on, egging Rodriguez on and saying, this is what happens when uh, you don't do what we need you to do. You know, you're, you're causing them pain for yourself, you know. And so we see that Garupe is under immense agony. And when they throw these people into the water and they push him down, he swims out to try and save him. And in doing this, he dies. He drowns himself by trying to save other people that are going to be drowned. The very interesting part is those five that are drowned were with Rodriguez, Mm -hmm. not with Garupe, because right before that, it shows them taking them out there, and when you see him pushed in, you you see it's the same Christians that Rodriguez has been with, but Garupe, who is severely malnourished, whereas Rodriguez has been fed three meals a day, and Garupe sacrifices his life to try and save them. And of course, that's right out of scripture, where Jesus says, there's no greater love than this, than he who lays down his life for someone else, and Garupe is laying down his life for people he doesn't know. He just knows they are Christians being uh, put to death for their faith. So it's an extremely powerful scene. And I do got to say, I almost wish there was another movie or another entire sequence. Of course, that would be extremely long. Yeah. Because we follow Rodriguez so much. And I do love what we get with Rodriguez. But I would really love to see what else Garupe has because clearly he sets a really powerful example. Yeah, and there is even a line that's said before the scene uh, I'm pretty sure it's by Rodriguez but he says, do not let martyrdom be my shame. I thought it would be my salvation. And we see this come back with Garupe where, uh, I mean we don't exactly see the ramifications of what happens after he dies um, but we're kind of led to believe that, well I guess it doesn't really ever explain what exactly the ramifications are. Um, whether it's good or it's bad. And we were only focused on Rodriguez and his ideals and stuff like that. It's a very powerful scene and very, very heartbreaking because of we know what they're going through, you know. Mm-hmm. And so now we have to see them, especially with Garupe. This is the end of his character. He's come to the point now where he's tried everything, but now he has to try and save these people. And even though he may not, he can't, and he kills himself on, he dies trying to do this. And it's really heartbreaking because it begins to ask, okay, well, when is that going to happen with Rodriguez? Is it going to happen with Rodriguez? Those questions begin to come up at this point. And something I wanted to bring up with the Father Ferreira scene, once we do get there, is the use of names. How it seems like, names hold power over these people 
So we learned that Father Ferreira's name has been changed. And we also know that the Japanese Christians take on, um, I guess you could say maybe like more Western type names. And because they're like, oh, well, my Christian name is etc. So I, I did find that interesting how they were using names to kind of change their identity in a way like oh, you are no longer this and we even hear rodriguez says i can no longer call you father yeah so calling people by their names or that can have this kind of like psychological impact on their identity and what did you think of when he brought up the how he was pointing at the sun and he was saying that is the sun and it rises daily and he was really putting a lot of doubt into him where he's saying you thought you got to him, but you really didn't. You two were on totally different planes of uh, thought when it came to Christianity. Yeah, it's it's very much showing that he's looking at more of the empirical evidence, um, saying we can depend on the sun because we know that it will rise and set every single day. It's been doing it for generations. And he said, it's, and as he indirectly says that it's hard for him to follow a god who he can't tell the difference of what's going to happen the day after. He can't, he, there's no way he can know because it's a force that is intangible. We cannot completely comprehend and understand it. And that's what causes him to give up his faith, essentially. He denounces and apostatizes that we can show, we can depend on the sun, yes, because of what it's done for us and how, and how it gives us life. And we once again get these Japanese themes of worshiping nature, because they are looking at things that are that they can see and that they can feel. And so seeing the sun and they can measure the sun, uh, they can tell by the seasons. Uh, it reflects off of the moon, what month it is. They can use the sun in many, many different ways. And so for him, and we have this, is I think, the biggest battle between the two religions, just in general, um, is what is right and what is... what Okay, what is right in terms of... Uh, spirit of, of a spiritual sense and terms of like the soul because we have yeah sun is very dependable but we can't tell if the god if our god is or not because we don't we can't measure it right and rodriguez brings up the point he said i saw people die and Ferrer says i did too but they weren't dying for their faith they were dying for you but that just seems to fly in the face of logic because going back to mokichi it just they have no incentive to die right. if they don't truly believe in lasting that long. I mean, that was a true testament of his faith, even to seeing that hymn at the end and just how eager they were for it. it. It just flies in the face of logic, and it does seem like Rodriguez understands that. And I do feel like he gives really good uh, responses. He does use some really good apologetics. Uh, especially when talking with the Inquisitor, because the Inquisitor's examples seem to be fairly clever, uh, talking about, you know, the different wives of the emperor and how that's like these countries that are coming in and they would rather choose their native um, country uh, of religion. But Rodriguez says that nationality doesn't matter. Yeah. And uh, he's saying love is what matters, and he compares it to a husband and a wife. And I, I felt those were actually really, uh, really good examples. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I wrote down my notes here because the Japanese are, at least in the how they're portrayed in this movie, um, I said in my notes, there's no way, no children, no way of continuing the family name. 
um, nowhere for the love to go. Perhaps deeper than that, no seed, there, therefore no tree, no legacy uh, when it comes to the Japanese. Because they're very much on the, on the side of, I want to leave a legacy. Um, they're, once again, the physical side of what they can feel, what they can touch, things like that. And so with Rodriguez, he talks about love. They're talking about love in a com- two completely different ways. Whereas more of physical love versus more as a feeling, um, an action, and things like that. It's more complicated on the other, on Rodriguez's side to explain and to talk about and to, even to feel than it is on the other side where it's very much I have to do this because uh, otherwise my family name will, won't be extended beyond me. You know, it's, it's very much um, history is essentially what they're going for, the Japanese, versus Rodriguez where he's going more, I guess, for more for... Not only just the individual, but also uh, leaving a legacy on a different end. Right. And the Inquisitor talks about a barren wife and an ugly wife. Right. And that's basically what Christianity is. He's like, it can't take root here. And it's funny because it could, and Rodriguez says it did, but it it can't when it keeps getting um, pesticides, Mm -hmm. essentially, just sprayed all over it, to use the plant analogy. And... It's not Christianity's fault because Christianity is a religion of peace. It's not about a violent overthrow uh, or anything like that. And it is interesting because the translator, who I do actually really like the character of the Mm -hmm. translator, he does bring up when they are in this, I'm assuming it's a Buddhist temple because he does mention the Buddha. He is saying there's so much of our religions to share. Like, why don't we just focus on sharing this and that? When, in contrast, it's like you said, no, it's not the same at all. Right. Theirs is more physically minded, and Ferreira says the Japanese can't conceive of anything beyond the human, whereas Christianity is far beyond that. Right. And uh, that's one of the things that I love about this movie, is that even though it has a clear message and a clear, um, I guess, it has a clear uh, status of what it's trying to say, um, it treats both of these with such great respect because the Japanese are shown that they are on their last legs. Yes, they want to get rid of Christianity, but they don't resort to violence unless they absolutely have to. If they were to have resorted to violence from the beginning where um, they found out that the people in Goto or the other village are all Christians, that they just killed him right there. No, they decide to go for a more, once again, more psychological approach. They take time to change their minds, right? There is a great respect for both of these faiths, and even in this conversation where Rodriguez could very, I feel very easily could have told the Inquisitor how wrong he is. He chooses a path that um, explains why he feels, why his belief is this way. And the Inquisitor, of course, once again, also chose to choose that path. There's a great respect between these two religions. However opposite they may be, it feels as if that there are pieces from both that work together. And that maybe is what Rodriguez needs to learn is that there are physical objects that can help us reach more of a spiritual sense. And what the Inquisitor needs to learn is that what we can't feel and what we can't measure uh, and, and things that are intangible, we also need to input into our own lives because that is part of what the soul is, is part of who we are as humans. What makes us human is even these intangible things we can't measure. There are things that both sides can learn from, but at the same time, what comes on top is Rodriguez and Christianity, of course. Right, and I think I understand what you're saying is, in some ways, Christianity probably should have been more adaptive to the culture, 
Now, not by mixing the two religions whatsoever, but maybe by, because Ferrer was saying, well, the only way that they could do it was by talking about these physical objects, but they probably didn't do a good enough job of talking about the spiritual aspects of that. Or they definitely could have used that as an example, but they said, this is what the son of God is. It's literally the son. Yeah. So I think that's probably where they missed the boat, but the uh, Japanese persecutors seem to be so set in their ways. They don't care about it. It should be said that um, I do think the inquisitor is right that, or I'm sorry, the translator is right. The inquisitor isn't necessarily cruel. He's practical about his approach to all of these things. So even though some of this does stuff probably, of, of course it is cruel to treat these Christians this way. It's not done in this just purely like psychotic fashion. Right. He does give him a chance to explain uh, multiple times because they do have those conversations. Right. Right. And I and even to maybe maybe even to kind of uh, better explain what I'm trying to say is that uh, Rodriguez as a character has only spent his time at least as far as we've known him uh, as far as we know in the temple and learning Christianity, learning what it means to become a priest. And now he's being put out into the field for his very first time, him and Grupe. And so they've learned over time that it's all about the spiritual side and that the physical side of things is, should be pushed aside as much as they, as much as it can. Whereas the Japanese are on the complete opposite end of that, you know? And so they, that's what I'm trying to say is that these two characters of the inquisitor and Rodriguez who have two completely different ideals being one being physical one being spiritual. They, there is a happy medium in between them but at the same time what the the belief that comes out on top between these two is still christianity and it's not like it's not like they're trying to rewrite the faith but it's just trying to say that you need the spiritual side and the physical side together because we're still human you know we can't go without one or the other which is what both maybe even are trying to do right so let's talk about kind of the big scene of the movie where Rodriguez is really pushed and tempted to step by Father Ferreira, and he sees the rest of the Christians hanging in the pit. I think this is a really powerful scene that has a lot of complexity to it, because on one hand, Ferreira is saying a priest imitates Christ. If Christ were here, he would apostatize, basically, to save these Christians, he, he would help them. And I think it's interesting because this is the exact opposite of what the scriptures say, because when Christ was tempted to apostatize in the desert, he didn't. And even though he asked the cup to pass uh, right before his um, crucifixion, he still accepted the cross, which meant many Jews who became Christians would die in the future, but live eternally with them. So I think what Ferreira is saying is pretty much heresy. But then Rodriguez, right before, it's really powerful how there is this total silence. And then all of a sudden you hear the voice of Christ. And I really want to talk about what Christ, what he hears Christ saying to him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah, this moment is, I mean, well, we've talked about this and that it's now, this is, this is what I consider to be the climax of the movie is, um, you've now had Rodriguez, his ideals are now being challenged to the maximum. And he, and they even have this torture technique, which is completely psychological at this point, because, uh, they are hanging 
these other Christians upside down. They put a hole uh, on the back of their on the back of their head, so that way the blood doesn't run to their head when they're upside down. These holes. But what makes them go insane is the fact that they hear the blood dripping onto the ground in this hole. That's the only thing that they hear. And just even thinking about that is just a nightmare because of just how psychologically damaging that can be. But on the other end of that, um, Rodriguez's ideals of only being purely spiritual are challenged, where he now has to apostatize if he wants to save these Christians. Uh, it's an interesting moment that they bring up because, yeah, like you said, um, had Rodriguez, like, in the, in that, in what you said with Jesus when he was in the desert, had he apostatized, uh, he didn't. I mean, he was, but he was very tempted to do so. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting that this is that, I mean, eventually, of course, he would have had to do this anyways. I don't think that that, that may be somebody considered to be predictable, but I would even say that that's just, that's just a given. I think what the most important part of the scene is, uh, what Christ says to him in this, like, in this, when everything goes silent and he finally, for the first time in the whole movie, hears what Christ is saying and what he's, what he say, what he says feels opposite of what you think he would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does seem to be the opposite. He says, your life is with me now. He says, go ahead and step. And I think what this is trying to say is, I know that you are a Christian in your heart. You have suffered persecution. And just because you're stepping on it doesn't mean I know I know you don't love me any less. And he says... I suffered alongside you this whole mm-hmm. time. He's like, I came, I came in bodily form to suffer. That's the whole point. And it, it's almost like he's saying that in this type of persecution circumstance, you suffered enough, but your suffering still won't be over because you will be this stranger in this land. And yes, you will have to live with your choices. You're still a Christian. You're still with me, but just just because you've made this doesn't mean you won't still be. Uh, doesn't mean I won't love you any less. Doesn't mean you still won't be with me. But there is still consequences, and we do see that. Yeah, yeah, and I love how we actually don't see him actively step on the plaque. Mm. It it shows. It, I think it's a it's a medium shot, but not of his foot. We just see his, we just see the reaction, and then it does a, and it cuts out to a wider shot of him, like just leading down and slower in a, like a like slow falling. Yeah, he's falling down in agony, mm-hmm. um, with his foot already on the plaque. So we don't ever see the impact of him putting his foot on it, which I think is an, a great idea that they chose, that Scorsese chose to show, is that we know his true intentions. We know his heart. And that not showing him step on the plaque, I think even goes to show metaphorically, that he is, that is not his true intentions. I mean, that is, I feel like that is also obvious, but at the same time, that's probably the best choice for him to make is to go ahead and step. Because at this point, he's not only suffered enough, but it's at a point now where the best choice for Rodriguez is in his character and his journey is to go ahead and step and to publicly apostatize, even though in his heart, that's not true. And it does, and like you said, with Jesus saying, and Christ talking to him, and we even see this image that we've seen multiple times throughout the movie, we see it fade to black. Um, and it's interesting that even this physical image that we see, um, it goes away, right? And so, once again, and 
we're led to believe after this that maybe it's true. Maybe he did give up his faith and is gone now. But we find out the end that's not true. Uh, it's interesting that this movie decided to, at this point, give up on almost all of Christianity. But in reality, it's not the intention. The intention was not just to give up. The intention was to show that it's, once again, it's what's in the heart, not what's, not what's outwardly being displayed. And that's uh, very reminiscent of what... Uh, is written in the book of Samuel where it says people look at the outside of a person, but God looks at the heart. Mm -hmm. And I found this to be personally challenging as a Christian thinking about uh, how would I judge other Christians because it's so easy and it's kind of the automatic, it's the default position to say, oh my gosh, you know, that's horrible, that's wrong, that is not the Christian thing to do, a true Christian wouldn't do that. But this movie really shows that it, it really challenged me and changed my thinking of you absolutely cannot say that or think that. And it's usually that kind of arrogant thinking, which would lead to your downfall. And even Jesus said, many will come to me and say, we did miracles, we cast out demons, we did all these wonderful things in your name. But then Jesus will say, I never knew you depart from me into the outer darkness. So it's just saying just because of these actions does not mean we will, we're, we're, we're good to go. <laughs> yeah. And I would even say, uh, going along with that, you can't really ever know somebody's true heart. I mean, not as a human, of course. Right. And it, this is something that even a movie, a little movie that no one's ever heard of called Citizen Kane has talked about is that you can't know every single thing about a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that this movie decided to tackle, uh, is this idea that, um, it's what is, what is in, it is what's in the heart that matters the most, right? And you can't know a person because you can't know that their heart is thinking what their heart is. You know, it's, if you judge somebody purely based on physical actions, then you are judging the wrong way. And that's the worst way you can judge somebody is by doing that. Even though it is the human thing to do, it's not the thing that's going to get anybody anywhere. It, but at the same time, it's going to make things just automatically worse. So, yeah, it's interesting that this movie decided that uh, all of the physical objects of Christianity are now, at this point, being thrown away. Um, they're searching through absolutely everything that I guess they're trying to get rid of Christianity, but they kind of can't. Uh, it's what's in the heart that matters the most. And they, we get the scene of this guy, I think he's a reporter or something that comes in and then he takes over the helm of narration for a while. Um, and talking about, uh, Father Rodriguez and things like that. It's, it's interesting that this movie decided to go this route. Um, because that's kind of what film is all about. It's about more or less evoking some kind of emotional response. Uh, you're meant to understand what the characters are going through. Uh, but with a lot of films that are very much based on evoking an emotion, this is one that I feel does it very, very well, where it's where it evokes a, a kind of emotion, which is exactly what film is supposed to do in the first place, which I find to be remarkable at the, at the very least. And I, I do think they do a good job of showing Ferreira and Rodriguez purposely showing they never smile. Once they've made these choices, right. clearly their lives have not improved. They constantly seem just depressed with their choices. And I do think they do have inner turmoil. And uh, I found it fascinating when Ferreira says, only our Lord can judge your heart. 
And then after that, we hear Rodriguez. We hear from Christ again, and Christ said, I, I suffered beside you. I was never silent. Yeah. And then Rodriguez does this prayer with Chichiro, and he says, but even if God had been silent my whole life to this very day, uh, everything I do or done speaks of him. It was in the silence that I heard your voice. And this kind of reminds me of this little poem talking about footsteps on the shore of a beach where uh, you you kind of are looking back and you only see one set of footprints and then you question God and you say, God, where were you during this whole time? And uh, God says, it was during those times that I carried you. So those footprints were God's footprints, not yours. And I found this to be a very similar parallel. And I have personally heard uh, testimonies, missionaries from some of these Asian countries uh, talking about Christians being persecuted for their faith. So, and I do think this is just a really, I was really concerned at first because I was like, oh my gosh, it, it's got a dark ending. It, yeah. It's not yeah. uplifting, but it actually is a very uplifting ending where you do see um, Rodriguez holding the cross in his little uh, casket. Uh, I found that to be very powerful and it sent a very powerful message and caused me to question um, how I think about my faith and the faith of my fellow brothers and sisters around the world. Yeah. And I mean, it, for me, I never uh, got the notion that they were no, more or less depressed. Uh, they say that they have uh, captured inner peace. Um, but they never say what exactly uh, that inner peace is, or if it's for one thing, or if it's for multiple things. Anyways, what I'm, what I'm, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that it feels as if they're at, yes, they are maybe at peace, but there is still something that they feel that they are missing. Because when Kichichiro comes around, it's uh, Garfield himself and or Rodriguez kind of falls pretty quick into more or less forgiving him of his sins. It's almost as if uh, he may have thought that he had had this inner peace, but in reality, there was still more that he needed to do, um, more that he needed to finish. And so, yeah, this moment when he and Katichiro, uh, he essentially forgives his sins because uh, he still is a father, and then he ends up dying there in the end, and we see that cross, which is the little cross that he got from the first time that he visited in his hand. Uh, and it burns, and it's going to burn too because it's made of wood. Mm-hmm. It, it's once again nobody knows except for the wife. Nobody knows uh, what was in it, what was really in his true heart. Even though he acted um, with the rules of the Japanese, and they constantly were on to him about about apostatizing almost daily. And it gets to a point where Kichichiro himself was found out that he was once again a Christian and he's taken away. We never see him ever. We never see him again after that. We don't really hear what exactly happened, what exactly became of him. But we, all we know is that he was taken away because he was a Christian. Um, but then we get to Rodriguez who dies in his casket burned like uh, the Japanese, how they do their burials. Um, but the little cross is in his hands. And even though it is a physical object, uh, the, spiritual implications that it gives because it was given to him by somebody he met in a village um, far outweigh the fact that it's just a physical object. And so, yeah, once this movie ends, it's quite powerful. And one that I was, even I was like, uh, oh, when I was first watching, I was like, uh, this isn't good that he's not a Christian anymore. And then at the very, very end, like the last thing that we see is the cross in his hands as he's burning alive. And we know, we just know in that point that he's a Christian again, 
he's not he's it's what's in the heart that matters not what he is outwardly displaying even though he is maybe even getting rid of all christian uh christian emblems and, and things like that and imports that come in for people moving there it's not what's he's doing it's what's in his heart that matters the most and that's what's going to reach out to more people than what he's doing essentially before we give our final thoughts, I did look up some statistics because I was curious to know the Christian population of Japan today. And according to CIA World Factbook, uh, to this day, the country is 0.7% Christian. So not even 1% of Japan is Christian. 84% are Shinto and or Buddhist and the rest of the country. 16% is just other, whatever that means, which is, of course, including that Christian statistic. But honestly, from what I've heard, a lot of the Shinto and Buddhism is, a lot of it is kind of name only. From what I've uh, read, a lot of the country is just kind of atheist or... Possibly agnostic, but I think a lot of Japan is just mostly atheist today. They just align because probably a family tradition with either Shinto or Buddhism. So it does seem that the uh, impact of the 17th century uh, Japanese stamping out of Christianity kind of pretty much did that. Now, these Christians are, just because there's 0.7%, they're not persecuted today in Japan as far as I know. Yeah, I don't think anyway. I've heard anything about that, so I'm pretty sure it's not persecution that's happening there. But you can see that what we see in this movie clearly had an impact to the present, and Christianity is barely even a thing in Japan, unfortunately, today. Right. So, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for Silence? According to Trebekka, the contemporary definition of cinema is the art of stimulating and experiences to communicate ideas, stories, perceptions, feelings, beauty, or atmosphere by the means of recording by the means of recorded or programmed moving images with other sensory stimulations. This is the this is a Christian movie that I have been waiting for my entire life to see because amidst a sea of Christian movies that I wouldn't stretch to call mediocre is sad because it's something that I've, I've if there's one thing I've wanted to see it's what I've wanted to see the Christian faith represented in a way in a film that is where it is accurately de uh, depicted and we never really kind of got that I mean we have films like the Ten Commandments and stuff like that but those are more bible stories finally we have a film that yes may be a story but at the same time is preaching some really heavy themes about christianity just in general done by a man who knows how to make a film which is sad that we have films like this that don't get any attention at all but at the same time we have a lot of movies like god's not dead which i would even say is almost the complete opposite uh in terms of this one by because of how much display uh, how much filmmaking talent there really isn't so when it's all said and done this may not be a film that everyone's going to enjoy just because of how long it is just because of even i would say some of the violence but at the same time i feel that this is an important film that everyone should see simply because it questions are it questions our perceptions at the core which is what to what is better the physical side of life or the spiritual emotional side of life 
What is the difference between those two? How do they relate? Things like that. How do we live in a world where the only thing that we can comprehend is the physical stuff, but we still have this piece of us that is still very much something that we can't measure, which is the soul and things like that. Of course, we can get into an entirely philosophical conversation about all that that entails, but at the same time, this is the kind of film that I live for. Maybe not one, maybe this is just, I think, a lucky that it was a Christian film, but this is the kind of film that I live for, one that is a film, something that is clearly, clearly defined as something that is meant to, once I said before, evoke a certain emotion, teach the audience a lesson that will stay with them forever. And that's why I, once I saw Silence, I told Corbin, you need to watch Silence. It may not impact everybody the same way that it does us, but at the same time, I think it is something that even though you don't, even though you're not necessarily spiritual in this kind of a, in this kind of a sense, it is something that I think still questions and asks asks good questions as to our own humanity, which is even then great filmmaking. So overall, this is going to be a nine out of ten and a the highest recommend I can absolutely give it because of how much is personally impacted me and may even be one of my favorites of all time purely because of the great filmmaking on display and what it's being said and how much has impacted me in the end on a production level silence is incredible and on a storytelling level silence is incredible and of course with the acting and all of it uh, comes together so beautifully and so well yes this is a really long movie and i do say at times you feel it but that doesn't necessarily mean it has poor pacing it just does a good job of letting you feel kind of this almost stagnation like when am i going to uh see relief for these characters if that makes sense and yes i do agree that silence is the best christian film of this decade and it is one of the best christian films of all time because it accurately portrays the christian life as uh just riddled with spiritual persecution and external persecution and how do we view that and how do we judge that and how do we deal with that? And I, I think it just does an absolutely phenomenal job exploring that. I, I was extremely impressed with Silence. I will say it would be one that I may return to probably once a year. I couldn't watch it too often uh, because in a way it is a difficult movie to watch. And like Alan said, it's probably not for everybody, but I would still say go ahead and give it a shot because, and even if you're not a Christian, there's still so much value with this movie and still a lot to be learned uh, about the individual and how we treat others and just relationships and different cultures coming together. What can we learn from those cultures and, uh, it's just extremely well put together in that way. So I am also giving Silence 9 stars out of 10. It is superb and it comes with a very high recommend. And there have been people who say that this is Scorsese's best movie he's made to date. Um, I can't attest to that because I haven't seen very, I haven't seen everything from him. Uh, but if that's the case coming from people, um, 
that are great critics and are very renowned in their critical view in film, that's a great achievement. And even though um, I even I would say this is not a movie I'm going to be watching very often, even though we both feel that, I don't judge a movie completely on that basis because a movie, for me, a movie can give me an emotion or a tell me a message within its runtime that I will only need to watch with that runtime. And even though this is a movie that you should, I think, should go back and watch more more than once because of how much how dense it is, this is a movie that is going to be kind of long. Two hours and 41 minutes is a long runtime. It's paced quite slow, but at the same time, because of that pacing and because of that stylistic choice, you get to get you get into these minds of the characters on a much deeper level than if it were fast-paced and more of an action flick than it was anything else. This is a very personal story, and it's meant to be that way. And it's something that I think is the best choice Scorsese made. And the fact that and the and I would even say that the fact that this is just a passion project, something that he just wanted to make just because he has the talent and the expertise to do so, regardless of how much money it cost him speaks truth to me that he is a great filmmaker because he's not doing it because of the money he's doing it because he just loves film and he loves speaking out in things that he believes is something that he needs to talk about which i found to be very very impressive so i would love to see more from scorsese like this because i haven't seen temptation of christ or the other one that i can't remember the name of um but now after seeing this i kind of want to see what else he's done because i know he's done more than just this as a spiritual film. I will own this film on Blu-ray. Oh, absolutely. I would too. I almost I think I almost ordered it the other day when it was like twelve bucks on Amazon, but then I didn't. Well I should have. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us along this review of Silence. We will have a bunch of more great reviews coming soon. Uh, the next one coming up is Solo, and I gotta say, I'm looking forward to it. I've heard a lot of mixed things, but mm-hmm. ultimately, I think it will be a pretty good one. I've got some faith in Ron Howard. Yep. And we're moving the special guest that was supposed to be on Silence because of some scheduling issues that were... Solo? Yes. Uh, we're having to move him to Ghost in the Shell. Uh, I think I told you about that. Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, oops, uh, he had family vacation at the time we were recording Solo, and we were like, oh, we can't do that. So uh, we moved him to Ghost in the Show, which I think will be just as good, if not better, because that movie's quite philosophical, and I love to have some good conversation on that kind of stuff. Versus Solo, which is just, you know, it's Star Wars, it's so fun. it's not going to be it's not gonna be anything meaty, essentially. But yeah, as I'm far as we know. That. Yeah, well, as far as we know, of course, yeah. We will be continuing our Jurassic World uh, series Jur- uh, Jurassic Park, I should say. Jurassic World was just released, yes. and we will be doing the review for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom very soon. We are continuing our Halloween retrospective series as well, and we also have a number of retrospective series coming up along with more individual reviews. And make sure to head over to the YouTube channel because we do a lot of weekend of release five minute reviews over there make sure to follow us through facebook and twitter and you could also sign up through email that way you never miss anything that we put out we've got uh some big plans also for this summer concerning the website concerning some premium content that will be available uh we're finalizing the details that will actually be ready for you very soon 
Until then, we want to say thank you again for listening to Silver Screen Guide. Make sure to give us a five-star review. We really appreciate it. Make sure to share it with your friends. We love discussing film, and we love discussing it with all of you as well. So thank you so much for joining us, and we will catch you next time.